Duggan, one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege and delight to bring the Word of God to you this morning. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. And let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open this passage to up, this, to, up to us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might hear Jesus speaking in it to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know if you're into fashion. It's not really my forte, Although, even for those of us who aren't that into fashion, there are times when it, it does matter and we have to acknowledge that, right? Like, we got to do a, a job interview, or we have to give a sermon and we have to put on a tie. That there are situations where we just can't avoid it. Um, what we wear matters a lot. And, you know, this was always an issue for me with, as a child. I, I had a lot of back and forth with my mother, but why do my socks need to match, you know? Like that sort of thing, poor, my poor mother. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd have debates about whether I had to war, wear a sweater because she was feeling cold, you know, just a lot of stuff uh, that, that uh, on the path that took me to at least agreeing that I had to be presentable to society. Um, there was one time, though, when I fully committed to a fashion choice. And I'm not sure how old I was, I was pretty small, but it was Christmas time, and I discovered tinsel. And I had a piece of gold tinsel I wore around my neck the whole Christmas season, and it only came off for bath time. So what we, what we wear, it matters a lot, doesn't it? And in this passage, Paul is talking about what we wear, only not literally. Paul, as we're going to see, is talking about what kind of humanity we are wearing, well, that's a little confusing. What does it mean to wear humanity? That's what we're going to see today. And we're going to look at three points. First, Paul tells his hearers to put off the old human. Second, he tells them to put on the new human. And third, we're going to see that he tells them to put on Jesus. So let's start with the first point. Put off the old human. So as we're reading through Ephesians Paul has just finished explaining God's plan for the church, how each of the people who are listening to this, uh, this letter have a place, a special place in the church. 
Uh, but now he's, he's turning to give them more practical advice about how they are to live. And how he starts that practical advice is with a warning not to go backwards. He reminded them back in chapter 2 that once upon a time they had been alienated from God's people. They'd been without God and without hope in the world. And remember, most of his hearers were not Jewish believers who learned to believe in Christ as the one who'd been prophesied by their scriptures. No, these were Gentiles. They really were complete outsiders to God's people. But obviously, there's something about that life that's still a little attractive to them, isn't there? And so Paul has to warn them not to go back. They are no longer to walk the way the Gentiles do. They're to live in a different way. He describes that Gentile life as their former manner of life. You know, Paul wraps it all up in a clothing metaphor. They are to put off their old self. This is like taking off an old garment. And uh, this metaphor, you know, it comes from priests in the Old Testament. When a priest was ordained, he had to take off all of his clothes and be washed completely from head to toe. And then he would put on new white linen garments. And this was part of his ordination to be a priest. He had to wear this so that he could be fit to serve God in his temple. We saw that vision today in the reading from Zechariah that Priscilla read for us, where, you know, Zechariah has this vision of the high priest horrifyingly wearing filthy garments. It's a disaster. He's not going to be able to intercede with God for the people like this. But what does Zechariah also see? He sees the angel of the Lord stand up for the priest and say, take off his filthy garments and bring him clean garments. It's a picture of something like this ordination ritual where the priest is made fit to serve God. Through God's mercy, his filthy garments are removed, representing the sins in the community, and new garments are given to him. And through this forgiveness, he's able to serve God. Well, the New Testament, it picks up on this image from the the world of priests and uses changing clothes, putting off and putting on, uh, a lot. Sometimes that image is an image of forgiveness, like in our assurance of pardon this morning, where, uh, you know, John sees these believers uh, who are washing their clothes white in the blood of the Lamb. Somehow they wash them in blood, but they turn white. Don't, don't try this at home. It, it's a picture of how they're clothed in Christ's righteousness. It's through Jesus' sacrifice that they're made right before God. But sometimes it's also this image of of changing clothes is a picture of the life transformation that happens when we are in Christ. You know, Paul talks about our old, in Romans 6, our old self being crucified with Christ in our baptism. There's this big change that happens in our lives. So that's another way the image is used. And that seems to be how Paul is mostly using it here. He's saying to the Ephesians that their old way of life is so last season not what they're supposed to wear anymore. Well, why not? What's so bad about that kind of life? Paul has a lot of reasons here. Before we dive right into that, I do want to make one qualification. Uh, It's important to say that the kind of unbelief in this chapter isn't the only kind of unbelief out there. Uh, For example, in the book of Galatians, Paul talks about a group of people that are striving really, really hard to obey God's law But they're doing it in a way that makes it impossible for them to have a father-child relationship with God. 
In Colossians 2, Paul talks about a group of people that are like really worryingly excited about denying their idea, desires, like they're fasting extremely and stuff like that. Um, and then they're also condemning other people who don't do the same thing. So those are both very different things than what Paul is describing here. Um, but they're both just as anti-Christian. Paul's really clear about that. It's just not what these Gentile converts were coming from. Of course, it's possible that they might overbalance into this sort of legalism um, that Paul describes elsewhere. He seems to talk about that more in Colossians. Maybe that was more of an issue there. So we need to be a little careful when we read a passage like this, not to overbalance away from the license being described here and go straight from fleshly license into fleshly legalism. Because, because Paul's really clear that both legalism and license come from the flesh, our sinful nature. So that's just a little bit of a, a preface here. But this passage is mostly about the kind of sinful license the Ephesians used to live in. Okay, so with, what that's, with that said, what does Paul have to say about this life? Well, first of all, when they lived this life, their minds were darkened. Verse 17, the futility of their minds. Verse 18, darkened in their understanding because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Paul is, of course, not saying here that, that unbelievers lack intelligence or that, you know, Christians will always win the spelling bee or be first in their class. In many ways, there are unbelievers who are a lot smarter than the people in the church often. But this is a kind of mental darkness that leads specifically to alien, being alienated from the life of God. As John Calvin would say, fallen human reason is still good and very useful for lots of things, but when it comes to religion, it always twists the knowledge of God into worshiping false idols. Note that it's also just not simple ignorance. By calling it hardness of heart, Paul harkens back to the Pharaoh of the Exodus, who saw these plagues with his own eyes and yet still hardened his heart against giving liberty to the Israelites. This is a willful ignorance, a pushing down of the evidence of God that surrounds us everywhere. And this alienation from God then feeds into their moral lives. They're called callous, literally beyond feeling or beyond caring. They become numb to God. They can't feel his presence in creation. And so they give themselves over to two things. Paul lists two main things here, sensuality and greed. Sensuality we could also translate as wantonness or licentiousness. It's giving free reign to our passions. And we might tend to think immediately of sexual passions, which is definitely included here, but also included is alcohol and even violence. We can have a wanton desire for violence, which we satisfy. Greed, on the other hand, is, is avarice or acquisitiveness, taking too much stuff, stealing from people, or hoarding the things that we have. Um, and I think every kind of impurity also summarizes both of these. After all, what, what is impurity? Maybe you've heard of the, the whole set of purity laws in the Old Testament, like you're not supposed to eat shellfish, you're not supposed to have a garment woven of different kinds of threads. And, and, you know, these things were fulfilled in Christ. They were a picture. But there's two other things that the prophets in the Old Testament often apply impurity language to. 
One is sexual sin, and the other is economic injustice. These are both often called impurity. And these were still important values in the Jewish community in Paul's day, and they continued into the church. Paul's going to come back to those in chapter 5, and I'm also preaching the sermon on that, so I'm not going to go any farther into them here. Um, For now, just make a note that both of these are important to avoid. But the main point I want to make here is that the Gentiles aren't living for God because they are living for their desires instead. Their old self is being corrupted through deceitful desires. Okay, so that's Paul's description of the old life in a nutshell. And there's a lot that we could unpack there. Um, But let's start with a little paradox. Paul says it was their former manner of life. And elsewhere in his letters, he tells believers that they have put off the old self past tense. Like I mentioned before, something that, say, happens in their conversion. He says the old self has been crucified with Christ in Romans. So if this past self is dead and gone, why does he have to warn the Ephesians not to walk in it? I don't know. Did you wonder that? Why does he tell them to put off what they've already put off? Some theologians really can't handle the tension here, and they try to make all the putting off of the old self into a past event. It's all past. It happens at conversion, and after that, old self gone. But it doesn't really work. Paul just uses the language both ways. A place you could see that is our Colossians 3 reading this morning. Sometimes this putting off is described as a radical change that happens when we believe in Jesus. And other times it's described as a command that we're supposed to keep doing. And even our translation, I have to say, has gotten a little bit confused here this morning because it reads that our old self is corrupt in uh, verse 22, but I think the Greek says something more like is being corrupted. In other words, Paul describes this old self as having, being something like an ongoing force in the lives of the believers that he's talking to. And you know, all of this sounds a lot like Galatians 5, where where Paul says that we have these desires from our flesh, and then we have these good desires given us by the Holy Spirit, and they're at war. So it's clear that as radical as conversion to Jesus is, it doesn't get rid of the flesh, our sinful nature, and it doesn't get rid of those kinds of desires. The struggle of the Christian life is striving to fulfill more and more the good desires that come from the Holy Spirit and less and less the desires of our flesh. You know, I think the priestly nature of Paul's metaphor can can help us here a bit. I mentioned that priests were clothed with new pure garments when they were ordained. This this one-time transformative act that made them into holy people that could serve God in a special way. But you know, they also had to change into those holy garments every time they came to work at the temple. It was a regular practice for them of taking off their common unclean clothes and putting on their clean garments to serve God in the temple. And so it is for the believer. In Christ, we've definitively taken off our old selves It's a radical change. And yet, we find ourselves constantly having to peel off old sinful desires again and again in the Christian life. 
And that's what Paul is calling the Ephesians to here. There's another thing we should observe, which is that the sinfulness of our fallen corruption, it corrupts both our reason and our emotions. Both reason and emotions. Paul mentions both darkened minds as well as deceitful desires here. Neither of them is pure on their own. Now, it's easy to mess this up. So sometimes it seems like all the problems I have in my life are caused by my emotions. I don't know if it ever seems like that to you. I'm, I'm trying to work on eating healthier these days, which means that I often have an experience that goes something like this. Oh, look, there's a piece of cake. I shouldn't eat that piece of cake. I'm not going to eat that piece of cake. I shouldn't be eating this piece of cake. Boy, I shouldn't have eaten that piece of cake. So like at no point in that process did my reason think it was a good idea to eat that piece of cake. And yet somehow I've still eaten it. This is like, you know, my emotions didn't listen to my reason. So we do, we do have problems like that. But it's not the only kind of problem we have. I mean, just think about the concerns we have today about people going on the internet and becoming trapped in false ideologies. Sometimes the problem is that our ideas are twisted. Sometimes we're doing exactly what we think is the right thing to do, but it's not. How many times in history have false ideologies convinced masses of people, even when they sometimes had emotions telling them this is probably not a good thing to be doing, to ignore that and do it anyway because they were told there's a good reason for it? Think of the Crusades, for instance. You know, imagine you're a, a, a king somewhere around, you know, in like uh, medieval Europe, and you're like, man, I'm glad I'm the king, but I've done a lot of violent things, and some of the people that I killed are my own relatives. I'm feeling like in a bad place with my faith, and I want to reconnect with Jesus, you know? And then somebody else comes to you and is like, oh, have you heard about the crusade? No, what's that? Oh, it's great. Like, it's for Jesus, and you get to be violent, Wait, I love Jesus, and I love being violent. I didn't know you could put those two things together. Oh, yeah, don't worry. Those people, they're not believers. So it doesn't matter. Like, you know, thousands of people went on the crusade for those very reasons. Hopefully my point is clear. Sometimes it's our ideas that are twisted. Neither our reason nor our emotions are uncorrupted by sin. We're both led astray by our darkened minds and being corrupted by our deceitful desires. And we could kind of sum up this whole point by pointing out that it's actually, I don't think it's really our old self Paul is saying we should put off. I'm not, I don't like that self-translation so much. I mean, what Paul really says is we should put off our old human. It sounds a little weirder, but that's what he says. We should put off our old human. Um, and I think that's because he's describing the Gentiles' former way of life as like a whole way of being human. Intellect, will, and desires. There wasn't any region of their humanity that wasn't twisted by sin in some way. This doesn't mean that the goodness God created, with, created them with was totally destroyed, but it had been covered over at every point with sin. So, living to God... It's going to mean a radical stripping off 
of everything that we tend to think that we are. Kids, let me ask you a question. Can you wear your socks in the bath? I'm seeing a lot of no's. Have I been doing it wrong this whole time? If you wear your socks in the bath, are your feet going to get clean? What do you think? I'm seeing a lot of no's. Okay, I think that's the right answer. And this is what becoming a Christian is like and continuing in the Christian life. We can't just hold on to this some part of who we were, were before as being totally fine. It all has to get stripped off. I even had to not wear my tinsel in the bath when I was a child. So that's our first point, putting off the old human. But Paul also tells them to put on the new human. As we just said, this is something that happened once for all in the first instance when they became Christians. You know, Paul says that they were recreated as a new human being. Super radical language for what happens to us when we find Jesus. But it's also something he calls them to keep doing. So what is this new humanity that they're supposed to put on? What does that look like? Well, the first thing we can say is that the new human is alive to God. That's language Paul uses in Romans. It's the opposite of alienated from the life of God here. It means that you're not numb to God, not being beyond caring what God thinks. It means being sensitive to who God is and what he might be telling us. Paul says in verse 23 that they are being renewed in the spirit of their minds. So this is a language of an ongoing process, which is sort of the opposite of the old human is being corrupted by deceitful desires. New human being renewed, old person being corrupted. What is the spirit of their minds, by the way? That's kind of an unusual phrase. The spirit of their minds. Well, the word spirit is important here. You know, if Paul just said we were being renewed in our minds, which he does say elsewhere, we could get a little confused and think that he's only talking about a theoretical intellectual project. Maybe it's just about learning a bunch of theology and knowing what all those Latin terms mean. But our spirit is the part of us that wills, that longs, that moves us to action. This isn't just new knowledge, though it does involve that. It's also these new good desires that Paul talks about in Galatians. I think what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit stirs up our spirit to desire to live for God. I think it's similar to what Jesus was talking about when he talked about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There's this new desire in our hearts. In other words, if you're learning more and more and more theology, but it isn't increasing your desire to love God and love people more, then something is going very, very seriously wrong with your spiritual growth. Here's something else Paul says about this new human we put on. It is created after the likeness of God. You know, Genesis tells us that when God first made Adam, he made him in his image. But that image was distorted by the fall. Now humanity is being recreated in Christ, and that means that we're being restored to the image of God. And that means that this new human is not just sort of like a new and improved 
humanity accomplished within our own human resources. This is a human who is like God in a way that humans never were before. You see, in Jesus, we are united to God, and the life of God recreates us to be more like him. And Paul says this all results in true righteousness and holiness. We begin to live our lives in a way that's righteous, which means faithful, right, and just with fellow human beings, and holy, set apart to God and pure in our devotion to him. Let's stop for a second and apply this. Um, You know, we're still very big picture here. Next week, we've got a bunch of really particular things to talk about. But this week, we're sticking with the big picture. Um, And I think Paul is kind of setting up a mindset for change. He's using this priestly language. By the way, as I was researching the sermon this week, I couldn't help but notice how often Paul is pulling phrases and ideas out of Jewish literature from his time as it described priests. You know, especially things that describe one passage in particular said, we're telling the priests, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be, you know, greedy and licentious. I was like, wow, that's a real close parallel. But notice that Paul is actually talking to Gentiles here, which is what's so striking about it. Like the whole undercurrent is that these Gentiles are now priests. What else is implied by him calling them saints, which is just holy people, which is what a priest is? So right on the beginning here, Paul is giving them this priestly mindset for how they are to think about their holiness. And I think one piece of that is that when you're a priest, you have to deal with yourself before you start helping other people. You show up at the temple in the morning You have to have been washed clean, and you have to change into your temple clothes. Maybe even you have to do the sacrifice for your own sin before you then start going out and helping all these other people who are coming here to have their sins forgiven. And so I think perhaps one application we could get from this passage is, uh, you know, like they say on an airplane with uh, your oxygen mask, change your own clothes before trying to help others. It means we should be willing to see how big a problem there is with us. We should expect to have both idea mind problems and desire problems. That's going to be an ongoing struggle in the Christian life. Which, by the way, should make us really willing to receive feedback. You know, if a fellow Christian comes to me and says, I think, I think you did or said something wrong, they're not always right, but I better listen. So here's, here's two questions that you can take and ask. Maybe you could take this into your week. Maybe you could pray about it. Is there something unholy in your heart or in your mind that needs to be challenged? And we could ask one on the other side. Is there something good that God is putting in your heart and your mind that he's calling you towards? What what I think this passage really calls us to work on is our willingness to be radically changed coming before God, asking the Holy Spirit to show us where that old human still needs to be rooted out and calling us towards what we need to put in its place. It's going to be a process, and praise be to God, your acceptance before God is not based on how well you obey. Rather, now that we have been called to be 
God's priests through Christ's work, this is the life that God is working in us. That's a little application to take with us into our week. But now for our third point, put on Jesus. You know, all this talk of the new human raises a big question. Who is this new human we are to put on? Because it is weirdly singular. I mean, I'm saying humanity, but that's not the word. And perhaps you've guessed this already, because Paul says in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This new human just is Jesus. When we're united with him, we receive our new humanity from his new humanity. He's the new Adam who succeeded where the old Adam failed, and so he is the source of a whole new humanity. His resurrected life flows from his ascended humanity at the right hand of the Father to give new life to all his people. That's where we've just come from, right? Christ ascended above that he might fill all things. And that means that this change from the old human to the new human has to be a Jesus-centered change. Paul actually says a lot in the passage that emphasizes this. I mean, he starts off with, I say and testify in the Lord. This is apostle language. He's reminding us that it's not that he has all these bright ideas. He's just a witness for Jesus. That's whose words he's really bringing here. And in verse 20, Paul says the Ephesians have learned Christ. A very interesting phrase. And you know, our translation says heard about Christ, but that might also be more direct. Heard Christ. They've learned Christ and heard Christ, and they have been taught in him. Getting the point here. Jesus is the one who's actually speaking to them. You know, the people standing in front of them and preaching to them are the apostles or other church officers, people like me. But the one whom they really hear is Jesus. Paul sums it all up by saying the truth is in Jesus. And Paul refers back to this truth again in verse 24. Our translation has true righteousness and holiness, but we could just as easily flip it around. The righteousness and holiness of the truth. Which truth? The truth that is in Jesus. In other words, where does this righteousness and holiness come from? It comes from the truth of Jesus. Jesus' life and teaching are the pattern of godlike righteousness and holiness. So what does all this mean? Well, it means that everything we do in the church is subordinate to our relationship to Jesus as his disciples. Now let me answer a possible objection. Perhaps you're thinking, Jamie, are you really saying to me, after all of this stuff about the church that we've read about and we've heard sermons about in Ephesians, that I don't need the church, that all I really need is Jesus? And no, I'm not saying that. Um, the church is God's normal means by which we meet Jesus. You know, it, was through a, it was through Paul's preaching that they heard Jesus talking to them. Um, so it's through the church that Jesus ordinarily speaks to us. We could say something similar about the Bible. It's super important that we have an objective record of Jesus' teaching through his apostles, right? Like we don't just have a multitude of different people's interpretations of who Jesus was. We have God's interpretation of who Jesus was. All of that is true. 
But here's the problem I want to point out. It is possible for churches to get disconnected from Jesus. It is. It happens. Could happen here. Could happen to us. John in Revelation talks about a church whose lampstand has been removed. The light is gone. No Jesus in that church anymore. And the same thing can happen with our Bible reading. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul devotes a whole chapter talking about people reading and rereading their Bibles, but because they don't have Christ, it does not transform them at all. These should both be very sobering realities to us. Am I telling you not to read your Bible and not to come to church? No. But can you change yourself simply through reading the Bible and going to church? Also, no. It has to be Jesus. You see, the work of the apostles in that first generation who gave us the Bible and the work of pastors and teachers, everything the church as an institution does is simply a means for us to meet and follow Jesus. That's the main point. That's how we are transformed into a new kind of human being. You see, this transformation is not something that we can make happen. That doesn't mean we're not called to work. That doesn't mean we're not called to strive, to put off and put on. Obviously not. Paul is exhorting us to do that here, but all that working can't get anywhere on its own. Not without the gracious working of God's Holy Spirit. Our Westminster Confession says, for every good work that a believer does, it requires a fresh act of the Holy Spirit to enable them to do it. You see, this transformation only happens because the Spirit gives Jesus to us over and over and over again. Ultimately, you see, the truth isn't something we acquire by learning a set of propositions or a bunch of rules. Not that propositions or rules don't have their place. But Paul doesn't even say here, you learned all of the propositions and rules about Jesus. He says you learned Jesus. Ultimately, the truth is something we are given as a person, Jesus himself. And this is the same person who loved us and died for us and now stands in God's presence interceding for us. We are welcomed into God's house as honored children, priests even, because we are clothed with his holiness. So with everything we might take away from this passage this week, Let's remember this, who it is that we have learned, not not what, what we've learned, but who? Jesus. He's the one who gave his life for us, and he's the one who continually gives his life to us as he transforms us through his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us Jesus without whom we have no hope. We thank you for clothing us in his righteousness and we pray that you would help us to endeavor and strive to do what this passage calls us to do. We pray that you would make our sin more and more something we hate and turn away from every day and we pray that you would hold out that righteousness, that love for you and for others. Help it to be more and more beautiful to us every day and help us especially to see Jesus more clearly and follow him more closely every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.